0: Welcome to the World of Critical Care. Today's episode is on hyponatremia, so a decreased sodium level below 135 milliequivalents per liter. When we start getting under 120 milliequivalents per liter, we're moving into severe hyponatremia, where it's really often a pretty significant concern. This is one of our most common electrolyte disorders. About 20% of admitted patients in a hospital are going to have hyponatremia. And 40 to 50% of ICU patients are also hyponatremia. This is an incredibly common disorder, specifically in neurosurgical patients as well. And so, if you're in the neuro ICU world, this is something that is dealt with much more frequently and can be much more concerning. This is something you're going to see as well in some unique patient populations. You see this in endurance athletes. You can see this in college students or people who go out and do binge drinking. This can be incredibly common and can have some pretty severe presentations. And so I think it's really valuable to think through this because there's a lot of different underlying causes, and we want to kind of parse them out. And so a lot of looking at hyponatremia is asking ourselves a few questions. Number one— do we trust the lab? And often one of the first things we do is we repeat the lab. Number two, is this acute or chronic? Is this something where we have a patient who they have two years of labs and their sodium is always 132, but they're asymptomatic? That's something we may be a little bit less worried about. Whereas if we have a patient who was previously 143 sodium, and now they're suddenly 122, and we have a symptomatic presentation, That's something that we want to be much more focused on and jump to. The other question we want to ask ourselves is, again, are we symptomatic or not? The sodium level, we can have people who are 123, 124, but they're asymptomatic, and we may be less quick to rush to treatment versus a patient who's 129, but we're seeing signs of being symptomatic. And so again, these are the questions we want to ask ourselves right away on the presentation. So what's our concern with a patient- who's hyponatromiac, our biggest issue has to do with fluid shifts. And in particular, as our sodium levels decrease, in particular, our extracellular sodium levels, as they start to decrease, we tend to have fluid shifts from outside the cell to inside the cell. And often, as our sodium levels begin to decrease more and more and more, our cells begin to swell. And we specifically see this uh, causing a cerebral swelling, which can lead to decreased neurological function. And so often it may start to present somewhat mildly. So we see, may see some mild impairment in cognition, a little bit of a fuzzy brain. We see some muscle weakness. People might be a little bit tired. We could see some cramping, maybe a little nausea starting to come into the play, And as it moves to a more severe presentation, we get severe confusion, altered level of consciousness, we can see seizures and ultimately progressing to coma and potentially death. And so our first question we want to ask ourselves is, are we symptomatic? Even before we say, do we trust the lab? If we have a decreased sodium level and we see evidence of being symptomatic, we really want to move straight to treatment. Because we want to start correcting quickly, and it kind of doesn't matter what our underlying process is. We have plenty of time to dig into the underlying process after we've treated, and treatment is quite simple. But what we also want to look at as our situation is we don't want to treat if we're not symptomatic because we have a big concern when we treat sodium. There's an issue called osmotic demyelination that can occur. If we raise our sodium too quickly, we can cause a neurological condition that is not easily detected or reversible because it can often take several days for this presentation for us to be able to see that osmotic demyelination occurring. And so when we raise sodium we really have a pretty hard and fast limit of about six milliequivalents a liter per day. We don't want to raise our sodium above six, and there's really a hard and fast stop of eight milliequivalents per liter per day. So if you have a sodium of 125, we really don't want to raise it over 131 in a 24-hour period, an absolute max to 133. And so if you have a patient present who's symptomatic and their sodium's, you know, 121, 122, we know that number one, if they're symptomatic, we need to start our treatment early. And number two, we also know that we need to raise the sodium, but raise it very carefully and very slowly. And so this is where our risk-benefit analysis comes in. We don't want to potentially create a neurological condition in a patient where there's no symptoms. Conversely, if you're highly symptomatic, we want to start treatment early because we know we can only raise the sodium so quickly. So before we jump into the different causes of hyponatremia, I think it's valuable to say, okay, you have that patient come in and they are symptomatic and we know we need to treat it. How are we going to do this? Typically, we want to start with hypertonic treatment. We really have two primary options. Our first option is 3% NS. Often you're going to give about 150 mils of this, and then you're going to repeat your sodium levels. Another option is going to be concentrated bicarb, so we can do sodium bicarbonate. Often you're looking at about two ampules, so that's about 100 mil equivalents or 100 mils. Remember, your bicarb amps are typically 50 mil amps, the little 50 mil glass bottle, or your large 50 mil syringe, which is going to have your 50 mil equivalents of sodium bicarbonate in it. Now, often the bicarbonate is a great option just because it's easily accessible. It's often in your OmniCells, it's in your code cards, crash cards, it's, it's just something that you can easily grab and start using, and so that's one of the reasons that it's a nice option 3%. Sodium chloride, typically you're going to have to have pharmacy make it and send it up so you can have a little bit of a delay in the process. Three percent, the one thing to think about is it really is one of those that is a vesicant. And so you really want to make sure often that that's done in a central line. And so I do think three percent, especially in the nursing world, it can be kind of the dangers be overplayed with it in particular. I think sort of like I remember when you get trained on norepinephrine like Levo, that, oh, you can never put it in a, you have to have a perfectly working central line. And, you know, of course, now the guidelines are a little bit different. If you have a good working peripheral IV, you can use norepinephrine in it. And, and I think 3%, again, we're looking at our, our risk reward with a patient in terms of how symptomatic they are. And so the line choice, again, can be important but it's something just to keep in mind. Now, typically we are going to give those initial treatments in a symptomatic patient. We're going to quickly repeat our sodium levels. Again, remember, we're initially looking for an increase in about 3 to 6 equivalents per liter in our sodium lab. But remember, we have a stop of 6 to 8 equivalents per 24 hours. So if you get that significant increase right away, that doesn't mean we're necessarily going to move to a secondary treatment. Often, if you have an increase of 5 to 6 mil equivalents per liter in your sodium, the next step is actually to fluid restrict in most situations. And in fact, one of our first treatment options when a patient comes in with a low sodium is to make the patient NPO. Because the more fluid we put in, we can create a dilutional effect. And so often what we're going to do here is we've given the treatment, we've repeated the lab, we're shooting for that goal of 3 to 6 mil equivalents per liter increase, and we're also going to fluid restrict, and we're going to move from there. Now, there's always a concern that we overcorrect. So let's say we've given that initial fluid treatment, or the, the sodium or the bicarbonate treatment, we're NPO but we suddenly increased, let's say we're now we've gone up by eight, maybe we've gone up by nine, and we say, whoa, 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 okay, we've gone a little bit over, we don't want to have that osmotic demyelination occurring. So in this situation, we actually have a few different options to think about. So number one is that you can use DDAVP. It's kind of called the DDAVP clamp. So this is where, remember, with desmopressin, what it's going to do is it's going to cause the kidneys to basically absorb every last drop of water. And so it will essentially increase the concentration of your urine, and it increases the absorption of the solute-free Water. And so this is a way where we're going to retain water and it can actually drop your sodium level a little bit. Now, that may seem counterintuitive, but the reason that this could be valuable is if we've maybe overshot a little bit or we're at some risk, we're a little bit afraid of overshooting, but we know we're strictly holding the patient's fluid intake, this could be a way where we could help regulate and put a little bit of a stop valve on overshooting our sodium even more. And so again, that's one of the treatment options you may see if you accidentally overshoot your sodium just a little bit. Additionally, of course, what we can do is just increase our water intake a little bit. And so if you have a patient who's able to, to drink water, we can increase PO intake slightly at this point, which can also help lower our sodium a little bit. We can also do a D5 infusion. And so, that, again, that's another option we have, which can additionally help lower our sodium level. And there's multiple different calculations out there that are done to hold the sodium or decrease it as we need. Now, one thing to think about as well is something that often happens in the ED, and this is called the isotonic fluid challenge. It's it's something that in general is probably not recommend recommended, but it can happen. And so it does tell you a lot, but it's also there's a high risk that you're going to make your hyponatremia worse. A lot of patients who present, especially in the emergency department, they end up with an isotonic crystalloid infusion. They'll give them a liter bolus, sometimes a 2-liter bolus. And the big concern is that it drops our sodium further. But it also can tell you a lot about your patient and their underlying state. If you've given a large flu, so you give a one liter, let's say, of NS, and their sodium increases, that tells us a lot. It tells us likely that you could be dealing with a patient in particular that possibly had a state where they were increasing, they had a lot of solute-free water that had been taken in before, and that this will raise our sodium. So it kind of tells us a little bit about what's going on. Now, conversely, if you have a patient that has a decreased sodium level, they've been given that fluid bolus. And that actually further drops their sodium. That again tells us a lot clinically about what could be going on underlying for the mechanism. When we see this situation in particular where you have a patient who's been given an isotonic crystalloid bolus and you see their sodium drop, it usually kind of tells us that we probably have concentrated urine and it Makes us suspect that most likely we have some sort of salt wasting going on. We really should start thinking about SIADH in this situation. Now, the reverse was what I first mentioned. If you were given that fluid bolus and it raises your sodium, more than likely it's probably going to say, Hey, we probably have some dilute urine, which again, we We can kind of say, okay, we're probably not moving into an SIADH situation. Now, we've kind of talked about we have that severe presentation, and we said, okay, here's how we would treat it. Here's what we would do. Here's the goal rate. Here's our concern when we treat. But let's say we have a patient where we've done the treatment, and now we're trying to figure out the underlying cause. Or we have a patient that wasn't symptomatic, and so we're now trying to say, okay, What do we do? What are the steps we take to figure out why is our sodium low? And in general, we can think of this in a few ways. The first is pseudo hyponatremia. That means we really don't believe the lab value. The lab value lied to us a little bit. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then we have three general options. And we think of it in a hypovolemic state, a euvolemic state, and a hypervolemic state. And this is a general simplification. There's a lot more to this. But in general, we want to think about our sodium in general in terms of volume status. And so that's how I'm going to kind of think about this. But to begin, as always, if we have a lab value, do we trust it? One of the challenges with looking at sodium is there are certain clinical situations that can cause a falsely low sodium level. This specifically has to do with the way the labs are done. They, they do something called flame photometry, which it basically looks at the serum in an aqueous and non-aqueous phase. And so if you have high levels of lipids like hypertriglyceridemia, especially if it's like up around 1,500. You have like a multiple myeloma patient where we have high protein in the serum. We have a patient possibly in DKA, so we have a high level of glucose in the serum. These are all situations where our urine osmolality, or sorry, our urine, our serum osmolality, so that that serum that we're looking at for our sodium level, we have a lot of particles in it, so the concentration is higher. That can actually skew our sodium levels, and so we can actually have a falsely low sodium level, and this is called pseudo hyponatremia. So it's a situation in which we don't actually have low sodium, but we have something which is kind of lying to us. I think this is important to mention because you do see this in critical care a fair amount. You'll have a lot of you'll see a lot of DKA patients, diabetic ketoacidosis. We have really high levels. Of glucose in our serum. And so because of that, again, we could have a falsely low sodium level. So again, really, really important to think about. And DKA is a bit unique as well, right? Because all of that glucose in the, in the bloodstream, we see a big fluid shift because the tonicity goes up in our bloodstream, right, and our body wants to move back to the homeostasis, right, and so it dumps water into our bloodstream, which has a big dilutional effect. So in DKA, we can legitimately have low sodium, and in fact, that's pretty common, but it could also lead to a situation where we have a falsely low sodium. So these are things to keep in mind, and they're called pseudohyponatremia. Now, we'll first start here with what we call our low volume state. So this is where we have a patient who has decreased extracellular volume status with a decreased sodium level. We want to think about this in two ways. Number one, we want to think about this from a renal versus a extrarenal sodium loss. Now, let me me say this a little bit differently. This is one of the values of having urinalysis in addition to our electrolyte labs. If we can see our electrolytes, we know our sodium. If we can actually know our serum osmolality, so how concentrated our serum is, this helps us then look at that and compare it to our urine sodium and our urine concentration because we can now know what's going on with our kidneys. And this is really important. So, for example, we're talking about hypovolemic hyponatremia. We have a low extracellular volume status. That means that we could have two options. Number one, we have extra renal sodium loss. This is really common in people with vomiting and diarrhea. We are losing a lot of sodium through an outlet that is not urine. And this is, again, really common for some of your ICU patients, but this is also really common in your emergency department admissions for people who've had possibly a GI bug, a stomach bug. You know, we're looking at something where we've got a parasitic infection. This is something that we could commonly see this presentation. And this would be confirmed because we're not going to see evidence of this in our urinalysis. Conversely, we might have renal sodium loss in this low volume state. This is really common in use with diuretics, especially our thiazide diuretics. We can see this with cerebral salt wasting. The exact mechanism is not known, but you'll see this in traumatic brain injury, subarachnoid hemorrhages, etc. We see a situation where we have salt wasting. So We have in our urinalysis a high sodium level. We know we're losing sodium through the kidneys. We can also have primary adrenal insufficiency, which again causes a situation where we are going to be losing our sodium and we're not going to have the appropriate amount of sodium in our extracellular volume, and this leads to that state. Now, the question is, again, what do we do for treatment in these situations? A lot of it largely depends on our looking at the clinical situation. Are we symptomatic or not? If we're symptomatic, the treatment, again, is pretty similar in terms of what we talked about in our initial part of this podcast on our treatment, looking at our 3% or our sodium bicarbonate. If you're asymptomatic, a lot of times just isotonic saline Is all we need to do to resolve the fluid. Status because again, we're hypovolemic in this situation. So, you have your nauseous patient, we have our having you know diarrhea, vomiting. We're going to use an isotonic fluid resuscitation to slowly bring that sodium level back up. And again, too, we're again looking at that fluid management the same for our patients with our renal sodium loss as well. So, diuretic use, cerebral salt wasting, or our primary adrenal insufficiency. So this is our hypovolemic state, meaning we have a low extracellular volume status. Now, what about a euvolemic state? So this is normal volume status. So this is a patient whose extracellular volume is normal. In this situation, we really start to think about SIADH. And so we're looking at antidiuretic hormone. Remember, antidiuretic hormone is released when our body senses that our sodium levels are starting to get a little bit too concentrated. Antidiuretic hormone is released. And what that does is it causes the kidneys to excrete sodium and retain free water. So specifically, we get a lot of solute free, free water, and that decreases our sodium levels. But when we have inappropriate antidiuretic hormone release, we can have increasing free water absorbed in a situation where our sodium is not actually high. And so this is where we have SIADH. We can also see this. In physiological stress, a so severe physiological stress can actually induce a situation where we have decreasing sodium excretion and not retention. We see this in hypothyroidism. One of the interesting ones, too, is polydipsia. So this is a situation where we just have increased thirst and PO intake above normal, but... We're in a euvolemic state. We haven't progressed to where we're totally hypervolemic. Again, treatment in these situations with SIADH is a bit different. We have some unique treatment pathways to go through there. I have a link here at the bottom of this podcast. It's worth clicking on if you want to move into SIADH just for time constraint. That's a whole discussion, but that's where a great resource to look at how we would look at SIADH treatment. Now, the final thing we think about is where we have hypervolemic hyponatremia. So this is where we have an elevated volume status, so an elevated extracellular volume status with a decreased sodium. And this is really common in critical care because we see this in, in patients with cirrhosis. We see liver failure, heart failure. This is incredibly common. And then we also have this in renal failure. So those are three conditions that we run into regularly in critical care. Often the goal here, the management, is diuresis. We're trying to decrease that extracellular volume status so that our sodium levels are more appropriate. And so often this is just diuresis and or fluid restriction. Of course, for some patients, possibly like your renal failure patients, this means dialysis or CRT to remove those fluids. Now, there's another situation that's a bit interesting, and it's related to a hypovolemic state. And it's a bit of its own category, and I think it's worth mentioning because it is something you do see, especially in the emergency department, and this is your patients that have a dramatically high increase in solute-free water intake that does not have electrolytes in it. And this is your people who go out and they binge drink and they drink 10, 12, 14 beers over a short period of time. They have a dramatic increase of water into the GI system, but it does not have a lot of electrolytes in it. And electrolytes themselves are not the only concerning thing. The tonicity, the amount of solutes in that solvent water is low and it causes these similar fluid shifts to occur and can be incredibly concerning. We see this too with endurance athletes. This is really common for your Ironman triathletes. You see this with people doing sometimes some of your slower athletes in a marathon who may be out for four, five, six hours for a marathon You can see this people doing these long bike races and gravel races where they're racing for 10, 12, 14 hours at a time. Often what happens is in the initial phases of the event, they take in electrolyte drinks so they have the proper osmolarity. But then what starts happening is a little GI upset kicks in. They start to feel some significant thirst. And so because of that, they switch from the electrolyte drinks that might have the appropriate amount of solutes in it and they start drinking water and what happens is they tend to overhydrate fairly significantly and this leads to a hypervolemic hyponatremia that is quite unique and it's very dangerous this there's actually some well-known studies and cases specifically one at Ironman Hawaii where you had a very good athlete who transitioned to just drinking water overhydrated and actually had a very severe presentation of hyponatremia. So again it's it's something to be very aware of that you can have seemingly incredibly healthy fit people who Given the right situation, we can be running into this. Another one that's a bit like this is something where we see it more psychological. So there are certain psychiatric conditions that can lead to severe polydipsia. So people just drink massive and massive amounts of water, which again, we have the same effect. And you can also see this sometimes with your older patients who tend to consume a lot of water or a lot of tea, but they don't really drink a lot of fluids with any kind of solutes in it and they tend to not eat a lot of food that has electrolytes in it really common i've seen this with some of the older elderly female patients in critical care where they come in the ed and their sodium is low and you kind of talk to them about their daily diet and you know they drink four cups of tea a day and four glasses of water a day they have some toast and you know, they might have a little soup or something, and that's it. And and this is kind of what they call the, the, the tea and toast diet concern. And so that's something to be on the lookout for sodium. The last thing I wanted to mention, and for anyone still listening <laughs> at this point, uh, thanks for continuing to hang in. This is a little longer. My goal is always under 20 minutes, but there's so much to think about on this topic, and it's so common. I think it's worth the time. I wanted to talk about potassium replacement in relation to sodium. And the reason I say that is this. Actually, replacing potassium will also increase your sodium level. And it's something that's worth doing a little research on if you're interested in it. But the reason I mention it is because if you have a patient who's hyponatremic and hyperkalemic, treating the hyperkalemia will actually also raise your sodium level a little bit. And so that's something to think about, too, that if the sodium's maybe like 128, 129, but your K is also 2.8, bringing the potassium up often is the first initiative, the first thing you're going to do. Often bringing that potassium back up over 3.5 will often bring your sodium close to a normal level as well. And so that's something to think about that we might not want to jump Right on the sodium correction, especially if they're asymptomatic, if you're already going to correct the potassium. And so that's something that we do see is the uh, concurrent correction if we use the potassium first, we correct it first. So something to consider. Well, with that, thank you for listening. And the next episode is going to be on hypernatremia, so the elevated sodium. And we'll spend some more time on that one as well, talking about why we may intentionally induce this effect. It's fairly rare that we intentionally decrease people's sodium levels below the norm, but there are some very specific clinical situations where we do elevate people's sodium levels, and we'll talk about that in the future episode. And thanks for listening as always, and I look forward to the next episode.